0: Well, our main Bible reading is Isaiah 7, that's what we're going to read now, and we're going to have a look at that and uh, also reflect a little bit on Isaiah 6 that we read a moment ago. So let me read Isaiah 7. In the days of Ahaz, the sons of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, mm-hmm. the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, "'Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sher Jeshub, your son, "'at the end of the conduit of the upper pool "'on the highway to the washer's field.' And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it, ...for ourselves, and set up the son of Tarbal as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria... And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as shoal or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, The land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such a day as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Well, in a minute we're going to have a look at that passage, but before we do, just mention a couple of things. There's a sermon outline inside your service sheet. You can use that if it's helpful, but you can ignore it if not. And the other thing to mention is that at the end of the sermon, there'll be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things that we've been reflecting upon. And I think it's important you know that's coming, so you can be thinking of the question that you might ask uh, when we get to that point. But first, uh, finally, and most importantly, let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to spend time with one another and to reflect upon your word. We thank you as we've celebrated Christmas that we've been able to celebrate the birth of your son. As we come to Isaiah 7 and see bits that we recognise and other bits that we might not, we pray, Lord, that we might be able to understand why you've put your word this way and how it explains and anticipates the day when your son will be born. We pray, Lord, that you help us this morning to reflect on these things together. Amen. All this took place to fulfil what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew 1, verse 22 to 23. Extremely well known words. And the reason they're well known is because at Christmas time they are read across the world. But as Matthew acknowledges, these words are not original to him. They come from a prophet who uttered them many years previously. Specifically, the prophet Isaiah. I wonder what it would have been like to hear them for the first time. Would he have gathered everyone around and said, Let me tell you of when our Saviour will be born. His mother will be a virgin. And he will be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Well, we've just read Isaiah 7 together, where Isaiah does first speak those words. And it seems an awful lot more cryptic than that. In fact, we can go as far as to say it doesn't seem to be speaking about Jesus at all. If you take Isaiah 7 at face value, it appears... That Isaiah isn't speaking about the future, but the sign of the child being born is a sign for the current king, King Ahaz. So that raises a whole load of questions, including, in particular, how does Jesus fulfill the prophecy that Isaiah spoke about? Now, it's worth mentioning in passing that Jesus himself does see his ministry tied up with Isaiah's. So, in Luke 4, verse 18, Jesus identifies as the one who has the spirit of the Lord to proclaim the good news. And that's taken from Isaiah 61. Then in Matthew 13, Jesus explains the reason he speaks in parables is that people may hear But not understand, which is precisely what Isaiah was asked to do by God back in the passage we read earlier in Isaiah 6. And of course, those two comments are really only scratching the surface. Jesus sees himself fulfilling the book of Isaiah. Of course, Jesus fulfills all the prophets, including Isaiah. But what does it mean for Jesus to fulfill what was written in the book of Isaiah? So, in order to engage in this question, today's approach is going to be, we'll spend a, a little bit of time in Isaiah 7, so we can get our heads around that. And then once we've done that, we'll make a few observations of what it might mean for Jesus to fulfill Isaiah. Isaiah. Ahaz is the king of Judah. So that makes Ahaz David's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson. It also makes Ahaz Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. He's in the line of David. We can say of Ahaz that he's the Messiah. In as far as Messiah means Christ... Both words mean anointed one. And both, and that ultimately means Ahaz is God's chosen king. It's all that a Messiah and Christ, anointed one mean. God's chosen king. The period that we're in is the period when Israel has been divided into two kingdoms. So while Ahaz reigns over Judah, which is the southern kingdom... Pekah, who is also mentioned in the passage, he reigns over Israel, the northern kingdom. So Israel's been divided into two kingdoms, the northern, ruled by Pekah, and the southern, ruled by Ahaz. Pekah, who's the king of Israel, has made an alliance with the king of Syria. And he intends to, with Syria's help, attack Judah. And this, it's this that's got King Ahaz and his people scared. It's at this point that God tells Isaiah to go and encourage Ahaz. But for this trip, Isaiah is to take his son with him. Now you'll notice that his son has, as an, has an odd name you'll see in verse 3, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Isaiah, you and Sheer Jeshub." Now if you look at your footnote, verse 10, it says, Sheer Jeshub means a remnant shall return. So, Isaiah goes to see Ahaz. And when he Introduces himself and his son to the king. The king will struggle to miss the message. Here is my son. His name is A Remnant Shall Return. This is not going to help Ahaz's anxiety. The people will be destroyed, and only a small number a remnant, will survive. However, despite this, Isaiah's general message is that Ahaz is not to worry. Ephraim, which is synonymous with Israel, will be destroyed. All Ahaz has to do is stand firm. It's at this point that Ahaz, sorry, Isaiah tells Ahaz to ask for a sign from the Lord. To which Ahaz responds with a false piety. He responds and says, verse 12, But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. The actual real reason for not wanting a sign is because Ahaz has put his confidence somewhere else. We read about this in 2 Kings 16 1 to 20. 2 Kings 16 1 to 20. We won't go there now, but let me just outline what happens. Ahaz goes to the king of Syria for help. And in that section that I mentioned, Ahaz writes a letter to the king. Which begins like this. I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria, from the hand of the king of Israel, who are attacking me. Now what I want to do is to compare that language that Ahaz uses to that which God uses when speaking of his people. So Ahaz starts his letter to the king of Syria, I am your servant. I am your son. But back in Exodus 4 22 to 23, God says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go so he may serve me. You see, Israel was God's son. And they'd been freed from Egypt to serve God. But in his letter, Ahaz refers to himself as the son of the king of Assyria. And says he will serve the king of Assyria. So given that, it's no surprise that Ahaz doesn't want a sign from God. His confidence is not in the God who brought Israel out of Egypt... Ahaz ignores him and submits himself and his people to the king of Assyria. But despite all this, God gives Ahaz the sign anyhow. A baby will be born and he will be called God with us. Now, eventually, when the child is old enough, he'll be weaned. But before he is weaned, the land of Syria and the land of Israel will be made desolate. At which time, Ahaz will know God is with us. God with us means to Ahaz. That God destroys those that oppose his people. At this point in the sign, Ahaz would have felt great. Even though Ahaz refused the sign, God gave it to him anyway. And when Ahaz would see the baby born, he would know the birth of the boy was good because his name would be God with us and that's good news because he knows that with the birth of the child his enemy enemies will soon be destroyed but there's more to this sign in verse 17 isaiah continues see, Ahaz has put his confidence not in the sign God was about to give him because he refused that. Ahaz has put his confidence in Assyria. And God will use Assyria to bring about his judgment upon Ahaz. Assyria is not the place to find support God is where Ahaz should have found support. And in a weird twist, Assyria will now become God's means of judgment. So what does it mean for God to be with us? For Ahaz, it had the real potential to be good news. God had rescued the people from Egypt And he was now ready to destroy their enemies. However, Ahaz had turned to another nation for stability. And so, for Ahaz, the name of the child would mean judgment. Because he did not trust in God for his salvation. Now notice our emphasis has tended to fall more upon the name of the child, God with us, rather than the state of the woman when she conceived. And why I mention this is because Matthew's fulfilment is more than just a prediction come true. That Jesus was born of a virgin means his birth is unusual, like Adam, like Isaac, like Samuel and others. And the unusual aspect of it makes this a significant turning point in redemptive history. It means that Jesus is a new Adam, a new human figurehead. But Jesus fulfills more than just this, because he fulfills the whole of Isaiah. And one of the main themes of Isaiah is the dulling effect that his words are intended to have upon the people. Judgment was coming upon the people. It was inevitable. And as a prophet, Isaiah's task wasn't to delay it or to prevent it. His words would bring the inevitable judgment sooner. The more he spoke, the less the people would listen. The more they heard of what he had to say, the more they would rebel against God. God with us is not good news for the people because they're to be destroyed so God can start again. And Isaiah's message is intended to hurry on that destruction. But do you remember the name of Isaiah's son? a remnant shall return. So when Jesus talks about his parables and why he speaks in parables, he quotes Isaiah in Matthew 13, 14 to 15. So what we have is the virgin has a child and his name will be God with us. And the words that the child will speak will not bring understanding but will dull the minds of those who hear. It's because of the words that Jesus speaks that the people will rise up and crucify him. Not because they were to get the better of him but because this was God's necessary plan. The words that Jesus spoke caused what was necessary to come sooner just as Isaiah's words would have done. The dulling effect of Jesus' words ensures that God's plan, that will climax at the cross, is not delayed. Well, all this raises the question, when Matthew announces that Isaiah is being fulfilled, that God is with us, Is it good news, or is it bad news? In many churches around the world, this will have been declared as the good news at Christmas. And in one respect, it is good news. But before we get there, we need to recognise it isn't quite as simple as that. That God is with us is likely to bring judgement upon a world that already stands Condemned. Because that's the world that Jesus enters. Jesus doesn't come to condemn precisely because the world is already condemned. It has been as far back as Genesis 3. It's under a curse. And that condemnation comes sooner when the people rise up to murder their creator. This is the meaning of John 3 verse 17 for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world is because it already stands condemned but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus doesn't come to condemn the world but bring salvation to a condemned world. Jesus will be pierced for our transgressions another quote that comes from isaiah he will gather a remnant up and he will send that remnant to gather up his people the message will go out to the nations the question then will be how will people respond to the news that the savior is here And so God has come into the world, a world that is condemned, and he is the only place we can find refuge. If we reject him, his presence with us certainly won't be good news. But if we acknowledge him as the Lord and Saviour, then God with us is the good news that we need. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have been able to spend this Christmas reflecting on the news that you have sent your Son into the world and that God is with us. We pray, Lord, as we reflect on these things, it would give us a great confidence knowing that your plans come through your many sovereign actions. And though things don't seem to go as we would expect them to go, and you don't do things the way we'd expect you to do, ultimately, it is all for your good purpose. We pray, Lord, as we anticipate this uh, new year, that we would know that you are in control of this world. It is yours to Um, use and fulfill your purpose. We pray, Lord, that we needn't worry because we know your plan is to redeem this world and redeem all those who are part of your salvation. And so we pray, Lord, that we would find refuge in your son because he is the only place where salvation can be found. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the start of the sermon that there'd be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things that we've been thinking about. That has now arrived. So, any thoughts, questions, or comments? Oh, yes. So, yeah, so just to repeat the question, so if he had asked for the sign, that would have been the right thing to do. Yeah. So, it is, it's interesting, isn't it, because when he says, um, I will not put the law to the test, we think, oh, that's good, because you're not supposed to do that. And we, we know elsewhere where that's picked up and God himself says, will you put the law to the test when he's speaking to the Israelites in the wilderness, so it sounds like he's got something right there. But given the um, circumstances in that Isaiah has said, ask a sign of the Lord, You know, he's been given permission to, this is what you should do, this is the right thing to do. Um, so I think it's fair to assume that. Um, and then, yeah, like we say, I think the reason he doesn't want to do that isn't because he's it is a it's a fake piety it's, it he's using it as an excuse because he doesn't want to know because he's put his confidence elsewhere yeah i th- i think from what i remember when I looked at this in more detail, is I think 21 to 22, it's the it's the sense of it's all you've got left. Um, so you've got an abundance of milk, and so that's all you'll be able to eat. Bec- you'll have to make curds, and that's all that'll be available to you. And I, I guess kind of it feels like it parallels a little bit, you know, the point where they've got so much meat, it's coming out of the noses, that sort of thing. That it's, it's not a good and abun- This is a this is a bad abundance. Little and often, that's why I always say little and often. Time for one more. Yes, Mackie. Good question. Okay, let's have a quick look then. Something to get our teeth stuck into. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 15, did you say? Uh, 33. 33. So we read there, 14 verse 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And yet, as we've been saying, Jesus seems to want to dull the minds. Um, Let's have a very brief look then at Matthew 13. I'll read from verse 10. So he's just told the parable of the sower. And it says this. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it's not been given. For to the one who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says... And then he goes on to explain the parable of the sower. Now, there are a few things happening here. So, if you remember when we have worked through the Gospels in the past, what we find is that actually no one really understands. So, although the disciples are a part of the kingdom, and although Jesus has them in their inner circle, actually they're as confused pretty much as everyone else. But they're following along. They're following in for the ride. Everyone else is rising up against him. And the reason why this is all taking place is because actually none of it will make sense until Jesus dies, rises again, and ascends. So ultimately, Jesus is... I mean, Jesus is... um, ministry is multifaceted in the sense that he is preparing his disciples so that once they're in the right circumstances, which is post-death, resurrection, and ascension, they will have everything they need to understand and send things forward. So, I mean, again, the parables, they have that role. They help the disciples to understand, while at the same time, he has to dull the minds of those who will rise up and crucify him. And of course that all happens to the point where even the um, disciples flee when the shepherd is struck, as it were. So you get reduced down to one, to um, Jesus. So the clarity comes once the setting is complete. Um, so it's not that God's bringing, you know, just chaotic confusion. But it's in the right setting, once the, all provision has been made, that the clarity will become clear. Yeah, does that help? So, it, and it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? If you try to explain it, well, which Jesus does talk to them about the cross, and they just can't get their heads around it. But then, all of a sudden, in Acts 2, Peter stands up, and explains the cross and, and what it all means. So there is clarity, not confusion, despite the dulling of the minds. Okay, let's leave it there. We're going to sing our next song, which is When I Survey, and then we'll spend a moment just further reflecting on some of the things and that we've been thinking about, further implications. Let's stand to sing.